I'd invite you now to turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 7, Matthew 7, and I want to read verses 7 through 11 this morning. This is a provocative passage, and I want you to uh, take account of how this passage makes you feel and thoughts that come to mind as I read it. Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open, opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good, give good things to those who ask him? Well, if I were to take a quick survey and ask you how this passage made you feel or the thoughts that rose in your mind or in your heart as you heard it, I would imagine that two different categories would come to the fore. And one is that the category of comfort. You would have said, man, this is comforting. I'm thankful that God makes promises to me to hear what I'm praying for and to answer and give me what I'm asking for. And Give me good things that I'm asking for in my life. Glad God cares to do that. I'm glad he promises to do that. But I would imagine that the second category that arose in your heart was, if you're like me, one of confusion. Comfort and simultaneous confusion hit my heart when I read a text like this without deeply trying to engage it and understand all of what Jesus is teaching. In fact, the being unclear on a text like this can um, kind of render it ineffective or ineffective to your own heart and something you just want to bypass altogether. It's confusing because when we pray, perhaps we are tempted to say, well, why didn't I get an answer for that? What's, what's going wrong in my life? What sin is hindering me from enjoying this promise that I ask and I'm promised to receive it? I'm seeking and I prom- I'm promised to find it. I knock, you know, and this is a continual knocking where I'm praying and praying and I don't see any action or response at all for my prayers. What kind of praying opens this promise up? Which prayers take and which do not? Which apply and which do not? Do I pray long enough? Am I praying sincerely enough? Am I praying uh, with enough strength, with enough earnestness, hard enough to... What's going on? Am I exercising enough faith when I pray? Or do I need to ramp something up to get off go? Perhaps you've relegated a text like this. This is right in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you've designated it or relegated this to the side as a proverb, something to shoot for. Hey, this is the ideal. I'm asking and proverbially or in general, God sometimes will give me what I want. And then I'll say, wow, there it is. But what about when it's not that way? Is this just some sort of mental gymnastic that I'm supposed to work through when I evaluate my own prayer life or my own relationship with the Lord? Is this a roller coaster ride that I'm to be on where things kind of come and go? This kind of 
unclarity on a passage like this can put you on that roller coaster where you could be tempted to start believing, whether you would say it or not. Man, I, God is kind of unreliable to me. He's uh, maybe questionable to me. And he's like the good or bad genie that I'm rubbing the bottle and, and the lamp and sometimes shows up and sometimes does not. We need to solve this text. We need to also solve it in view of a void and vacuum that is being filled by false teaching to solve this text. Now, we're going to teach the truth, but I want to teach it in contrast to what is false and errant in our church world or evangelical world at large. And it's been this way for years and years. All of my upbringing, I heard a false teaching that was called the Word of Faith Movement. And it's continuing to progress within churches and through media. I don't know what it will look like through post-COVID, but it's, there's nothing new under the sun. And the Word of Faith movement, whether you're looking at its old personalities or new, is still the same thing in new dress. The older crowd was Kenneth, K- Kenneth Copeland. You've heard of him. Benny Hinn. You've heard of him. Creflo Dollar. Perhaps you've heard of him, Kenneth Hagin, who's really the founder of the Word of Faith movement, the Rama Ministries or Rama, the school of, of that in Oklahoma. And then the health and wealth gospel is also right in keeping with this. It's the same false doctrine of naming and claiming and prosperity gospel. T.D. Jakes is a luminary for that, a figurehead for that. And also um, you've heard of Joel Osteen who's basically a motivational self-help speaker, but he is conveying a sermon that, or a message that promises prosperity if you will have enough faith, if you're believing enough and you're wanting it enough by faith. Perhaps some of the newer faces of this false doctrine are um, a guy named Bill Johnson. Bill Johnson from Redding, California. He um, promotes a movement called the New Apostolic Reformation. We've uh, um, sort of dialogued through that, and we've confronted that over the years as a church leadership here. Uh, There's a music uh, sort of band and team that comes from his, uh, his movement, his false teaching. It's called Jesus Culture, and I only bring that up because Jesus Culture music is played all the time, and, you know, it's, it's a kind of a a gateway into the Bill Johnson New Apostolic Reformation movement. Something to stay away from. There's a guy named Todd White who, who comes as a sort of nomadic Rastafarian faith healer, self-pronounced faith healer. And um, all of them are promoting something that is other than the true gospel. You need to be aware of these things. Part of my job as a pastor, as an elder here, is to warn you from what is false. Even if it's obvious on the face of things, that kind of falsehood can creep within the church and become a self-esteem, self-promoting movement. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me movement, even within mainline conservative evangelicalism. And that's to be avoided. You have to understand text and and you have to understand the points of scripture within their context and understand things in terms of the whole bible or otherwise you can be steered off track i watched a video just uh in in the course of study probably it came up on my on my media feed and it was todd white and he was 
promoting the fact that he had to have knee surgery even though he was a faith healer or is a supposed faith healer. And he was explaining himself and saying, basically, I had this knee. It went bad. I was praying for all these people. All these people were getting healed, but my knee was not getting healed, so I didn't know what to do. And he's a really sincere guy and, you know, he's empathetic as you listen to him. So he's smoothly drawing you in and saying that I went to the doctor and the doctor was a Jewish man. And so he's one of God's children. And so I was explaining to him my dilemma. And then I I went away from the doctor and was praying. And suddenly God told me to squat down and I squatted down. My knee was healed. Miraculously, I could jump around. Everything was fine. So he went back to his doctor to show him that, to, to praise God for that. And the doctor said, well, that's all well and good that you can squat and stuff, but you have to prove this with an MRI or otherwise we can't let you out of the agreement that we've negotiated with your insurance with Workman's Comp. Now, he's just explaining these things out loud, basically saying, oh, no. He said, I would have to pay $1,100 to have that MRI done, and I don't have that money. And so he was in a dilemma. So then he goes and prays in the car, and, and God, in a still, small voice, tells him to go through with the surgery. Go through with it anyway. Even though you're fine, go through with it anyway to witness and lay your life down, you know, for this doctor so that this doctor can become my child. And he says, oh, of course, the devil didn't tell me that because the devil wouldn't tell me to do something like that. All of those are manipulations. And maybe on the face of things, it's obvious to us that that's manipulation and weird. And he just didn't want to pay the $1,100, obviously. And he's got to go in for the surgery as a cover for the fact that he's a faith healer. I mean, these things are pretty obvious, but people get drawn into this stuff and they want to believe it because they want to believe one thing. They want to believe that the source of power is in us, not in God. That's it. And self-promoting false teachers want money for that message. And so they sell it and it's sellable and people begin to believe these manipulations. And there's theology under this that you need to hear that's false theology. So you're warned to run from it. Isaiah 53, 5 By his stripes, we are healed. People will promote that and say, I'm claiming, I'm demanding healing. I'm proclaiming or declaring healing based on this verse. Satan is robbing me of blessings. That's what they'll promote. Satan is keeping you from having full health and prosperity. You need to have more faith and less Satan to have a good marriage, a full health, solid. And these expectations are sold. Jesus really was rich. He wasn't poor. The apostles were independently wealthy, traveling with them as wanderers who hobnobbed with the upper-class society. They'll preach prosperity, just trust in yourself, be a positive thinker. This is not new. Positive sort of coaching is something that people love. And when that is blurred in with gospel preaching, it debunks it altogether. It's positive thinking, not true Faith And there's a cloak here. There's a disguise here that people will will put on things to act like they're really giving the gospel and they aren't. There's this whole ministry and it's the new apostolic reformation, but it's, it's coming strong and it's dominionist theology where people are able to believe that they are claiming things for themselves. They're, they're pushing weather patterns off. They're praying for healing. They're, they're demanding of God that he do things for them. Now, again, I'm talking as someone who grew up a mile from the CBN, the Christian Broadcasting Network um, studio. I used to run the numbers for Pat Robertson sometimes and volunteer things because we just lived there and we didn't know any better. I mean, my church used to share time in their building and use it for Sunday school and things like that. 
And so I kind of grew up around Charismatics and um, Pentecostals in Virginia Beach. There's a lot of that there. I have dear friends who are Charismatics and, and friends, but there is errant teaching that needs to be called out. Even if you are of the Charismatic persuasion, you need to be able to see when a movement goes beyond the gospel. We're not talking about intramural debates here of, of, of the gifts and the sign gifts. We're talking about people who are preaching a false Christ and a false gospel. And so there, this dominionist theology um, proclaims that you are, you need to take a little God status. And they base that off of Adam. And they say that Adam was here pre, pre-sin and pre-fall in paradise. And he was working and doing things like a superhero. And you need to claim that kind of persona and life here and now. And they say you can achieve that through Christ um, and his example. Bill Johnson will, will teach that. Christ came as the perfect human who at a certain point divested himself of, of his full deity. And so he was just operating in his humanity, not deity, under the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when he named and claimed and did miracles and walked on water, that's all stuff that is accessible to us if we have enough faith. Does that make sense? I mean, it's, it's horrible, but you need to understand what's wrong with it to understand what's right and what is true. They, Cast us as little gods. Kenneth Copeland preached a sermon called The Force of Love. And he said, you don't have to have God in you. You are one. Sloppy theology. It's wrong. It's misusing verses. They use Psalm 82, 6, which is a rebuke in Psalm 82. It's just a few verses. But it says, I said you are God, son of the most high, all of you. And what God was doing was sarcastically rebuking false judges in the Old Testament. And saying that you are parading yourselves as if you're gods. And so then that picks up in John 10 where Jesus was preaching about being the good shepherd. And the Pharisees said, you're proclaiming yourself as God. And so Jesus uses the rebuke of Psalm 82 to rebuke the Pharisees when he said, he answered him, John 10, 34. Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. So he's using sarcasm and rebuking the Pharisees. There, he's not saying that we actually are to be gods. If you want to be like a Pharisee, then that's the application of saying you are a god in this case. Jesus is making this point so that they will see that there's only one true God. Not us, not the judges of Psalm 82, not the Pharisees, the Son of God. That's the point. He's contrasting them with him. Creflo Dollar, if you've heard of him, he in a sermon called Suffer the Children, he was making the case that since animals produce animals after their own kind and people are made in the image of God, then people are little gods. And he whoops up the crowd saying, so if the Godhead says, let us make man in our image and everything produces after its own kind, then they will produce what? And the congregation says, gods. And Dollar says, gods, yes, little gods, you are not human. The only part of you that... Is human is your flesh that you are wearing. This is dangerous. This is also the cult of Mormonism, right? Where they're promoting this little God status and you will be gods as you go into the next life. It's the idea that you're pushing for pragmatic results and they are false teachers who are enticing people to um, trust and rely in inner strength. And that flies in the face of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Just Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Blessed are the meek, 
Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. These are the beatitudes. This is the posture of dependence. And I want to just remind you, I mean, Jesus always comes with half truths that are really whole lies. Are we going to have prosperity? Are we going to have a sinless um, experience, existence in Christ? Yes, in heaven, in heaven. We have an inheritance waiting for us, right? Are, are you tracking with me? I mean, the, the false teachers are saying, demand your kingdom now, as opposed to a kingdom that is coming. Uh, you don't have to suffer. You can just have it now. When was that lie promoted in the Gospels, right? right? Satan did to Jesus. He said, look, just bow down, worship me now. You can have all the kingdoms of the world. You don't have to go to the cross just have it your way now. That's the same lie that comes through this movement. And they're blaming us for not believing it or experiencing it, saying suffering is of Satan. And the reason you're not living in prosperity is you have weak faith. Your faith is weak. Well, I've promised persecution in this life and promised suffering in this life. And if we can't um, sort of see this um, these verses as uh, a pragmatic, you do this and God will do that in this life, then why do we pray at all? What's the use if we can't command things or summon things or make things happen? What's the use? Why pray these promises? Is this prom- promise even legitimate? Well, God is the ultimate promise keeper. You remember the promise keepers movement? The one promise keeper, the one true promise keeper is God. God keeps his promises and he wants to set our expectation for how we are to relate to him in 2021 and 2022. Whatever, come what may. He wants to set the expectation for how you will relate to him in prayer. And this is, so this is the question I'm asking and and I'm going to answer from this text. How Jesus promised... To give us what we ask for when we ask for things can be true. How Jesus promised, how can Jesus promise here that he's going to give us what we ask for when we ask for it? How is that true? How is that provable? You should be saying, prove this to me. If it's not the word of faith movement, then what is this? Because we need this. We need, the, we need this promise It's not enough to just tell you what it's not. We need to understand what this is and what it means. Well, here's the first principle. Principle number one, I want you to write this down. True prayer reacts to what God wants and is not God reacting to what you want. True prayer is reacting to what God wants, not directing God to react to what we want. Now, how do we unlock this promise? So well, unlocking the first promise to ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, knock and it will be open to you, is to understand that these, this promise or these specific phrases are applied within the context of a father to child relationship. It's like God is your father and you are the two-year-old. God is father and we cry out to him, Abba or Daddy. That's the posture that we come in. Not little God status, child status. That's how God is portraying this prayer posture. We come as dependent 
Children, just as the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, meek, humble, lowly, persecuted. This is our life. But we come energized in this life because we're coming in the posture of a child needing God as our father to help us. Now, if you've ever parented or been a guardian of anyone or grandparented a child, you know something of this love relationship where someone is dependent upon you and you need to give to them what they need. Otherwise, they won't have it. And you flip that in reverse, you know if you've had a parent or a guardian who was good to you, who loved you, you know what it's like to ask for things and depend and rely upon a parent for your needs to be met. And there's beauty in that, but ultimately there's imperfection in that. No one parents perfectly, no one is a perfect child. But in this scenario, God as your father is perfect and he has perfect character He's completely reliable. He loves you as his child. All of you, no matter what you've done and where you've been, if you're his child, you are his kept in the beloved. You're in his heart and he wants to give good gifts to you and he's doing it all the time. We're the center in the relationship, but this is the most authentic and most real and most powerful relationship that you can experience in life is a relationship with God as your father. Through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. As good as it gets. Verse 7 here is describing how Christians relate to their Heavenly Father in view of needs. Now again, if you look back to chapter 6, and you, you see this in what we went through a couple weeks ago, verses 25 to 34, about not being anxious in life, about food and clothing and shelter. God providing for all of our basic, essential survival needs. And we're to ask for, for you know, God to provide these things in view of the fact that he already knows what we need before we ask for things. It's amazing. Look at this in Matthew 6 and then verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Verse 32. For the Gentiles, here's the same word, seek after all these things. And look at this, and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. God knows what you need before you're asking for it. We're not calling God to react to us, requiring things from God, demanding things to happen in the name of God as if we are God's. We are reacting to God. God is not reacting to us. Yes, there's dynamism in the relationship, but our posture is one of dependence saying, God, I need you. Imagine being that two-year-old going through the, you know, the checkout line. I know that as a parent, you can't relate to this, but all the, you know, sort of candy that's like drug paraphernalia that's laid out there on the, on the knee-high level where kids are scrambling for that to ingest and they fall apart in that moment. They're going, I need this. I demand that I get this. You know, I would you know, do horrible things if I do not get these things from you. Now, I must have, right? And what you say is, I know really what you need. A nap, right? A nap, that's what you need. And so I'm gonna give you what you need, not what you want. This is the relationship. This is how you should understand these verses. The parent knows what we need before we're asking for it. 
That's the same context in chapter 6, verse 7, leading into the Lord's Prayer. We don't pray like the Gentiles. That means pagans in this context. We're not just drumming up words, saying mantras, making things happen like it's some sort of seance or some sort of voodoo magic to make things happen in prayer. Even using the word Jesus over and over and over again, saying things to whoop up God to react to what you want and what you demand. No, that's not what it says. Jesus is saying, I reject that. Don't do that. Verse 8, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So pray like this. Pray these things. He knows. We pray in light of God's wisdom. We pray in light of what he already knows that we need. And when what we pray synchronizes with what he wants us to have, amazing. It's exactly what we prayed for. But that doesn't always happen. Our deepest needs are met. God knows what we need before we ask for them. And provision is promised. And while we ask, while we're seeking, while we're knocking, while we're doing these things, God is actively working within our lives to bring things about. What we need is not always what we're asking for, though. So to come fully clear on this lead-in to this text, I do want to just cross off a couple categories of what this is not um, this is sort of retread ground here, but prayer is not pragmatic based. It's not, it's not pragmatism. If I do this, then I will get that. Uh, basically, the Word of Faith movement has made prayer very man-centered, anthropocentric. It's about you. It's about your effort, your faith, how much you put into it or how much money you give towards the movement. This is what will get your needs answered. This will, this will fulfill this promise. That's what unlocks that. That's not true. It's not making demands of God. It's, it's a 180 out from what Jesus is teaching here. So again, we're not making God react to us. We're reacting to God. Second, it's not precision-based. And I don't want to confuse you with that. I mean, there is something real to praying specifically and carefully and praying um, in the best of your ability to try to pray the will of God for your life as it aligns with Scripture and you would apply that to particular circumstances. All that's real. All that's powerful. We're not just to pray for things in general, but you just need to see here that as Jesus directs us in how to pray, these are very generic categories for what we're praying for. We are asking, we're seeking, and we are knocking. And, and then nothing is really described here exactly in terms of what we're going to pray for at any one point. And you go back to Matthew chapter 7 and, or Matthew 6. We're, we're praying for God's name to be hallowed. We want his glory to be displayed through the earth and set apart. His kingdom to come. It's coming in, in the building of his church. We get that. Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, you know, provide food. Provide clothing. Provide shelter. Forgive us our debts as we forgive others. So forgive us our sins. And I'm not saying we don't confess specific sins to God. We, we need to do that. First John 1, 9. But these are generic, non-precise categories that we're to fill in just Trusting God to work out the precision part, we're not commanding God to do anything in precision. That's not what prayer is about. Prayer is about God. Prayer is about laying ourselves at his feet, putting ourselves in his hands, taking a posture of submission and dependence before the Lord, bowing before the throne of God and letting God fill in precise ways he wants to answer within his providence, not our own 
way of making things up in our own minds and conjuring them and trying to manipulate God into doing something that we think he should do for us. We're not able to manipulate God. We're not negotiating. We're not, we're not sort of meeting God on our own terms and making demands. That's not prayer at all. That's the opposite of this. The categories under do not be anxious are basically food, clothing, and shelter. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The idea of asking for God back in um, um, Matthew 6.13 not to lead us in temptation Now, again, we can pray over our specific needs, our specific temptations, but in general, we should be saying, Lord, give me a heart of dependence upon you so that when hard things are happening in my life and pressure comes on, they don't turn into temptations in my heart. That's what this means. These are non-precise prayer requests that we should exercise, which just all I'm saying by that is we need to leave the Lord in the lead as to how things are going to play out in his providence. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. We don't know the future. I mean, we know the future in general from scripture. We know the book of Revelation is going to happen. We know Jesus is going to return bodily. We know he's going to wipe out his enemies and take us home. We understand that. We don't know exactly how all this is playing out. We leave that up to the providence of God, the million variables that God brings together to bring about circumstances in your own life that are amazing and dynamic and real. And you go, wow. I mean, have you ever thought about a a spiritual issue and just something hits you and then you read it in scripture and it's in your devotions and then you're talking to somebody and they say, I was just thinking about that. I was just talking about that. Then a sermon comes on your feed that's addressing that same issue. And there's this sort of kaleidoscope of Holy Spirit led dynamics that bring about this idea that God is working out in your own mind and thinking and life. And then it's applied in some amazing way that was unforeseen where you needed to share that with somebody that needed it as a timely word. That's all God. He's doing all that stuff. That's amazing dynamism, but we can't predict those things. And we're not, we're not guiding God on that path. God is guiding us. He's in the lead within his providence. Romans 11, 33 through 35. Paul, after writing all that he wrote in Romans up to this point about the gospel and its depth and breadth, he just gets overwhelmed and doxologically erupts. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Listen to this. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of of the Lord or who has been his counselor? It's like the clay talking back to the potter, you know, and trying to Tell the creator what's right and wrong. It's amazing. God is in the lead. God is in charge. One preacher put it this way. He said, in his word, God gives enough truth for us to be responsible. Watch this. But enough mystery for us to be dependent. There's enough mystery for us to be dependent. Word of faith wants you to take dominion over your circumstances and entices people's flesh to follow that kind of path. James 1, five. it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, what? Ask of God and God will give it generously and without reproach. That's a pretty bold promise, but it's a pretty generic one too. Ask for wisdom and God's going to give it generously to all and without reproach. Now we need to believe that promise is real, right? And powerful and purposeful in our lives. A 
someone who would have errant theology, like I've been talking about, might say, yeah, God gives me a wisdom or gives me wisdom that's supernatural or a, a word of knowledge to know what's going on in someone's heart or life in that dynamic moment. That's not what it's talking about at all. In James 1, 1 through 4, James is talking about trials and suffering and considering it joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith will produce endurance. Let endurance have its perfect work in you that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. All that means is as the pressure trial comes on in your life that you didn't expect, Lord, here's, here's applying verse 5, asking for wisdom. Lord, give me the wisdom to see that you are working things out in my life that I don't understand why this hit me or why this is happening or why I have to bear this load. But I do understand that you're forming Christ within me. You're making me stronger for you. You're building endurance in me and strengthening me as the pressure comes on. You're building Christ up in me and I'm strengthened by that. Lord, let me be wise to believe that truth and that reality. That's the context of asking for wisdom to see that the pressure coming on you is building Christ in you so that you can make it through. That's what this is all about. That's not, this is not some, you know, propping you up to have wisdom that God has that we don't have insights that we, that are mysterious to us. And the context later talks about not falling into a double-mindedness. Don't be wishy-washy in your faith. Have a steadfast faith that perseveres. Paul prayed this way. I won't belabor this too much more, but all through the epistles um, in chapter, the first chapter of several of them, he prays that the churches would have wisdom, would have understanding, would have knowledge. Do you ever wonder, why does he pray that? It's so generic. I want to learn to pray like Paul. Well, what did he pray for? He prayed that, like in Ephesians, that the church would know the height, depth, length, and breadth, to know the love of Christ, to be enveloped in the love of Christ. Will God bless that kind of prayer? Yes. Is he going to, is he going to fulfill that prayer? Yes, because he promises to grow people. So if you pray that people will grow, if you pray that Christians will grow, that's right in concert with what God promises to do. He who begin a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Philippians 1, 6. And then 2 Corinthians 3, 18. We're growing as we behold God's glory from one level to the next. Um, Colossians 1, 28. Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching with all wisdom that he may present every man, what? Complete in Christ. So if you pray for Christians to grow, God's doing that work and we're in sync with that. That's why Paul prayed that way. This is, again, hearkening back to the Big theme that I've been presenting from this text, and I think the Lord's directed us to, it's, it's a mindset that's not a consumer. It's a mindset that's a worshiper. You're either a consumer or a worshiper. When you come to church, you're either coming to get and take and have a worldly mindset where you want to receive, or you're a worshiper who wants to give, who wants to honor, who wants to praise, who wants to serve. That's a worshiper. That's somebody who's attributing worth and value to God. That's worship. And a consumer is somebody who's taking and feeding their flesh. And that's the difference between the true gospel and this false gospel that I'm trying to show you is errant and wrong and 180 out from what Jesus teaches. Well, now what is, what is true prayer? Well, it's providence-based. I think I've already hit on that already, but providence-based it's where we pray expecting answers based on God's providence. Sometimes God answers yes. Sometimes God answers no. Oftentimes, at least in my life, God says wait, right? 
I mean, think about Paul when he was told no. He sought the Lord three times, 2 Corinthians 12. Take this thorn from me. Remove this thorn from me. These were terrorists that were in the church who were demonized and they were demon influenced and they were apostles of Satan, messengers of Satan who were, who were coming after him and, and promoting lies to undermine Paul's ministry. And Paul was saying, take it away, Lord, take it away, please. I'm fighting the good fight of faith, destroying these speculations and lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God. He was doing that. He's like, take it away. And God said, no. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfect in weakness. This will keep you humble because you were able to see into heaven. You need to be humble. Sometimes it's no. And sometimes it's wait. And then sometimes it's I'm going to give you something different than you ever thought I would give you. You ask for this, but he gives you that. I remember the lesson of waiting and being patient. I've been thinking about that because I've been waiting for my tax refund to drop. I know none of you are doing that. and It's not on your mind whatsoever. But I've been thinking, you know, I learned the lesson of patience back when I was six years old. I cut out, and I never did this, but I did it once. I cut out a um, little um, advertisement in the back of my comic book to get some toy set that I won't go into. But I wanted that, man. I was six and my mom helped me do it, and, I, and, and you kids, what we used to do to um, send mail is you actually would put something in an envelope and put a stamp on it and address it, right? And I put it in the mailbox, and, and then it would take a week or two to, to go. The postman would take it to the organization, the company, and then they would process that material that you wrote them to receive and you sent the money that way and then it would take weeks to come back that whole process took me six weeks about three weeks in going to the mailbox every day my mom finally counseled me jeff you just need to stop and pause and trust god and wait and just let it go in six weeks total it came and i was a happy guy but i think that that's i mean things Principles like these don't get a whole lot more complicated than that. You're, you're probably sitting there waiting on something, waiting for an answer, waiting for God either to give you specifically what you're asking for, what you're seeking, and maybe he's going to give you something different or he'll give it to you in time. I don't know. Let's look at the grammar here real quick in verse 7. It says, ask. This is a present tense verb. It's, um, it's ongoing. It's an imperative. It's a command. It's active. You're, you're asking regularly, but you're doing it in the context of the father-child relationship. Secondly, seek. That's seeking. It's a passion word. Like Jesus seek, was, came to seek and save the lost when he was um, confronted by the Romans at Gethsemane. Whom do you seek? John four twenty three. The father seeks his worshipers. It's the emotion of prayer. And then knock. This is the idea of you are just, you're rapping on the door. Just like in um, Luke chapter 11, the parable and parable in parallel to this when and you're in bed and your friend comes in the middle of the night and has a need and says, knock, 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 you get up, get up. And you said, I'm in bed, I'm, I'm sleeping and I have my family in bed with me. I'm not getting up and I don't want to wake everybody up. And, but it was, it was for his impudence, which, is, which means he's just not stopping that finally you get up. And that's, that's pointing out the fact that even though God knows what we need, he's going to provide it in his own timing, in his own way, we're still supposed to have a posture of asking, a posture of dependence and seeking, and then knocking, which speaks of the constancy in prayer. All these things are good. Look at the promises here. 
If you ask, it will be given to you. You will find it will be opened. The two, uh, the first and third verbs here, it will be given and it will be opened. They're very beautiful to me. They're called the future passive tense. What that means is it's a grammatical way to understand that it will be given is something that God is going to give that was always in his mind all the time. It will be given. You can rest. That's the passive sense of this. You can rest in the fact that God has already made up his mind to give you what you are going to receive. So it's not up to us. We're in the process, but God is the one who is doing the work as we ask. He's going to provide it for us in the future. And seek and you will find it. There's certainty in that. You will find it. It's going to happen. Knock. It will be opened to you. It will come your way. This was how Paul prayed. Do you remember Paul in prison? He wrote Ephesians and Colossians. He's in jail as a prisoner missionary. And he goes, and also for me, Ephesians 6, 19, he's just gone through the armor of God. And he says, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. How dynamic is he? Chained to a Roman guard, sitting there, just, you know, with that guard, you know, that God would give me the words to say to that person, that God would dynamically open my mouth wherever I am, whatever circumstance you've placed me in, I'm embracing that circumstance and I'm praying that God you'll open my mouth. And then Colossians 4, 3, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Open the door, let the word come out on account of which I am in prison. So he's praying for an open door, even though he's chained up. He's not saying, I declare that my chains fall off right now. Now that kind of happened later on. He's, he's in, um, I was probably earlier um, in the context of the book of Acts, but he was in prison in Philippi, right, with Silas, and he sang hymns. He's shackled. There's probably like rat feces all around his feet and a lot of times the sewage would be dumped through the uh, prisons and they would be strapped um, you know spread out completely in shackles and and he and Silas are singing hymns and praising God through all of that and then the doors fly open and the Philippian jailer says what must I do to be what saved the whole household believed and the church of Philippi was born he walked up and in um, Lystra Thyra, Tyra, and Saul, Lydia, the seller of purple. And in Acts 16, 13, it says, uh, on the Sabbath day, he went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. I mean, just like in Jesus' ministry, you just walk up to people, you share the gospel in the dynamic and flow of the Christian life. You just open your heart, open your mind and give the word of God and people are saved. Acts 17, you remember when he was um, in Athens and he walked around and there were idols all around and, and he was stirred in his spirit. Acts 17, 16, it says, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was what? Provoked within. These are dynamics. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he put it this way. He said, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of divine omnipotence. Spurgeon also said our prayers are in the predestination and that God has as much ordained his people's prayers as anything else. And when we pray, we are producing links in the chain of ordained facts 
Destiny decrees what I should pray. I pray destiny decrees that I shall be answered, and the answer comes to me. So our motivations, asking, seeking, and knocking, are all resting in God's providence. Why do you run out of energy when you pray? Why do you run out of motivation? You forget that you are relying on God, not in the reverse, where God is relying on you. You're relying on God when you pray. We, we don't make God react to us. God, um, we are reacting rather to God. That's how it always is. It's a normal Christian life. How do we distinguish between ourselves and um, everyone else? Well, it's kind of like a parent, how a parent distinguishes every other child but his own. Your child is someone you love. You give everything to your child. Your child growing up will never know how much you gave to them. They'll never be able to quantify that with enough thank yous because you're just giving to that child reflexively. You're giving out of your own heart. And Christianity is bound up in being a child to the ultimate parent. That's prayer. Prayer is going to God as our parent. And the word of faith movement gets this in reverse. It wants to make you the parent over God, not you the child under a parent. Think about Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed. He's in the greatest sort of extreme moment of his life up to this point in Luke twenty-two forty-two, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is our divine savior. If anybody could have ever propped themselves up and said, I demand this or that, you would think it would be the divine son. And Jesus says, no, not my will, but your will be done. Well, that's point one of the message, and we have to stop because we're out of time. But point two is true prayer means God defines what is good for our lives. And so we're going to look at that next time. How does God define what is good for your life? And what does that mean?